G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have the charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, with the instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. 
the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Father, we come uh, before you tonight and we want to humble ourselves before your word. We thank you for the inspiration of your word by your Holy Spirit that it's given for our good, our instruction, our, our growth. And so we pray now that as we open these pages, this chapter of scripture, we ask, Father, that your spirit would be inspiring our hearts to that we might see these words and take them to heart and be changed. And Father, we pray, and I pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we ask this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Well, in 2001, uh, I served with the commandos in East Timor. Uh, East Timor at that point was a country that was ravaged by war. It was torn to pieces. It was a sad place in many ways. I lived in a town called Balabo in a tent uh, for those seven months and about less than 100 meters from my tent, there was a burned out shell of a house. And uh, the locals called it the kissing house. And so I asked one of, one of the locals early on in my time there, why do you call it the kissing house? And he told me. He actually showed me. And one of the walls in, in that burned out house, you could see quite vivid red stains on the wall. And he said that when the militia were in control of the town, they had taken young Timorese girls, they had dolled them up with makeup, bright lipstick, they had raped them. And then they'd smashed their heads against that wall in what they called a militia kiss. And they executed them and dumped the bodies. When I stood there looking at that wall, I felt like I was looking down the moor of raw evil. But we live in Geelong, don't we? And uh, in Geelong, we're concerned about barbecues and social media feeds and surfing and sport and summer and coffee and, and all the things that go to make up our lives. Evil, we kind of go, yeah, we know it's out there, but it's a long way away. It's a long way away from us. The thing with evil is that it's always there. And when it comes and when it makes its presence known, it still surprises us. So let's look at how this works in this chapter of Esther. And today in Esther chapter 3, we face evil and it catches us by surprise because things have been going well. Uh, if you followed us through this journey of Esther, it's now nine years since Xerxes or Ahasuerus, the same man, the great party he has before the invasion of Greece. Nine years ago now when there's the clash with Queen Vashti and her dethroning. Nine years since that, it's five years since Esther wins the uh, beauty contest for the Queen of Persia and becomes the Queen in Vasti's place. It's four years ago since an event that I skimmed over very quickly, in fact, I didn't mention it at all last week, which is where Mordecai, who's Queen Esther's uncle, uh, adopted uncle, adopted father, 
discovers a plot to murder King Ahasuerus and reports it, saving the king's life. That was four years ago, but then comes verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, after all these good things, really, the king promotes Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So he's essentially the new prime minister of Persia. He's the second most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time. And the king orders, everybody bow to my new prime minister. It's a pretty common uh, command, and they all do, except one, Mordecai. Why? I mean, it's like, I presume if you go to Buckingham Palace, no matter what your feelings are about the constitutional monarchy, you will probably curtsy or you'll probably bow because it's a sign of respect. It's not a religious observance thing. It's not something against your conscience. It's just a nicety. It's a polite thing to do. And it was the same in Persia. We know that Jews in the Persian Empire including, as far as you know, men like Daniel who had come before and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, very happy to bow to the king. So why is it that when uh, Haman shows up, there's a sea of, of bums in the air and faces on the ground and eyeballing him across that distance is Mordecai eyeballing him, I'm standing, I'm not bowing. What is going on here? Well, the answer I think lies in the text where it tells us that Mordecai now decides to throw off his disguise, up to this point he's been hiding his Jewish ethnicity and Jewish religion, and he says, I'm a Jew. Now, now what's significant with Mordecai being a Jew? Well, verse 1 tells us, the king promotes Haman the Agagite. Now, not only is Agagite a very difficult word to pronounce, I find it so, but it's a very significant word. It's, the, it's a solution to that riddle of why Mordecai won't bow. And you say, well, Andrew, thank you. I, I don't really see how, how Haman the Agagite is really solving it. But in the flow of biblical history, it becomes pretty clear because uh, Agag was a famous king of a nation called the Amalekites. Uh, the Amalekites show up first in, in the book of Exodus. Uh, God's people, uh, Israel, is being taken by God out of Egypt uh, through the Red Sea. They come across, they're heading towards the land that he's promised to give them. And on the way, the people of Amalek, the people ask, can we pass through? And the people of Amalek say, no. And what they do is they fall on the stragglers and the weak ones and they kill and they murder. And God says to Moses in Exodus 17, he says, because they did this, I am going to be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. So that was Amalek. King Agag was one of the most one of the, the, the kings that show up in the Bible, who was a king of Amalek. He reigned at the same time as King Saul. I know it's a lot of history if you haven't followed it. King Saul was the king that came before David, the first king of Israel. He and Agag reign at the same time, and Saul is commanded by God through the prophet Samuel to continue the war with Amalek. He does so. He captures Agag, and then Saul goes, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm going to show him mercy and let him walk away. And King Samuel says, no, you're not. He's from Amalek. God's judgment is on them. He needs to be executed, and he does. Now, do you see where we're going here? Hundreds of years later, in a, the, per, the court of the Persian Empire, hundreds of kilometers where all that had happened previously, you have a showdown between two men. You have Mordecai, the direct descendant of King Saul, 
standing there as one of God's covenant people, the Jews, and you have on the other side, you have Haman the Agagite, the direct descendant of King Agag. This is a showdown. Mordecai will bow to a pagan king, but he will not bow to Haman. And Haman's very understanding about that. He wants to cut him some slack. He just lets it. No, he doesn't. Uh, we, get a, we get an insight into this man, Haman. He's a man full of pride. And you bow to me. You can see him eyeing him off. You bow. No. And we're told that it's tested. Um, the, the, they say to the officials, like, who's going to, word's going to stand here? Prime Minister Haman or this Jew called Mordecai who won't bow? And uh, Haman goes, well, it's gonna, it's, I'm going to sort this out. And I'm not just going to deal with that one Jew, Mordecai. I'm going to deal with all of them. This insult on me is just going to be revenged by him and I having a, a little go-to outside. I'm going to kill, murder every single Jew, man, woman, child in the entire Persian Empire. Then I'll be satisfied with what you've done, Mordecai. It's a big call for a man with a big ego. And so verse 7 tells us that Haman casts lots. Uh, the, Hebrew, the Persian word is per. Um, these were like dice. They're, I think as far as we can tell, they're identical to the dice that you use in your Monopoly game. Exactly the same. But in this case, they're used for supernatural um, occults, like a seance. And Haman's saying, what's going to be the day that we do this? That we wipe them all out? And, and they go through this ceremony and they arrive on, in, finally to the day, the 12th month and the 13th day. This is when we'll wipe them out, which incidentally happens to be the first day of the Passover feast, when the Jewish people remembered their, their saving act of God in Egypt. So Haman springs into action. He's not the rising star of Persian politics for nothing. He gets stuff done. And he, he starts off by deftly manipulating the king. He says, king, you know, there's, um, there's this people group in your empire they're really a pain in the bum. They've got different laws. They don't, they don't, they're not like everybody else. And look, they're just, a, they're just a waste of resources, a waste of oxygen. Let me sort them out for you. He's like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, and Haman says, and look, and I'll pay for it myself. And he offers to, um, to um, put into the, the Persian treasury 10,000 talents, which I, I did some research. It's around 300 tons of silver. 300 tons. That is a lot of silver. I tried to work out what it was in Australian dollars today. I couldn't. It's millions, tens of millions of dollars. Haman says, I'll pay for it myself. And the king goes, oh, well, sounds like a good idea. Here's the signet ring. Go and make it happen. And Haman does. The king's in his name. The orders are written out. On this day, every man, Jewish, woman, boy, child will be executed the messengers go out. The next morning, every Jewish person in the person the empire wakes up discovering that now they are suddenly on death row. Their lives are hanging by a thread. And then after a good day's work, we're told that uh, Haman and the king sit down to have a few well-earned beers. That's the story. What you see here is raw evil. You know, I told that story, you know, we, many of us will know it. What you see here is the deliberate, systematic genocide, the deliberate murder of every single person of a race. This is raw evil. 
And is it a coincidence? Is this just a random event that happens in history in the Persian Empire a couple hundred years before Alexander the Great? It's not a random event. In the book of Esther, we've seen that God's presence is hidden. You won't find God's name. You won't find prophets and kings and salvation history in the book of Esther. God is hidden. He's hidden, but he's working. Here we see that he's not the only one who is hidden, but working. There is another force at play here. In Esther chapter 3, we see the fingerprints clearly of a force of ancient evil, incredible power, and hatred. Who am I talking about? Well, come with me to Daniel chapter 10. If you like, I think it'll be on the screen. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, the book of Daniel. And Daniel takes place in the reign of um, Ahasuerus' grandfather, Cyrus. It's set also in Persia. Listen to this. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. And then you can read in the account, an angel comes, a, a mighty, powerful angel. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. God has answered his prayer. But then listen to this. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. But the vision is for days yet to come. You see this? So God sends one of his greatest angels to go in response to Daniel's prayer. And this thing, this creature, the prince of Persia, withstands him for 21 days. I don't know how you or, you or I would go withstanding one of God's mightiest angels for a blink of a second, let alone 21 days. We are talking here about a, an incredibly powerful supernatural evil force. We're talking about the devil, Lucifer, Satan. The devil is every bit as real as God Almighty is real, and that's real. He exists. He is real. Here we we see him at action. And as we look at Esther chapter 3, yes, it's not overtly at work, but let's see what is going on here underneath the surface. Because the evil, raw, radical evil is not just out there in the Persian Empire thousands of years ago. It's not in East Timor a couple of decades ago. It's here in Geelong, and it's here in each one of our hearts. We're talking about raw evil. Satan is actively opposed and he is implacably opposing the purposes of God. Now, what about us? What what are we to do with Esther chapter 3? There's four applications which I want to suggest to you and I think each of them in their own way are encouraging. Number one, Satan hates the Jewish people. Satan hates the Jewish people. I'd encourage you, if you haven't ever done so, to read the history of the Jewish people down through the centuries and the millennia. 
And what you will see is one drawn-out cry of agony, of pogroms and persecutions and dispossessions and exiles and murders and injustices to the extent that as for such prolonged amount of time and such intensity of no other nation or people on earth. You really think this is just a coincidence? Something that's just a random fact in the annals of history, just an anomaly like any other anomaly. You really, you really think it's a coincidence in World War II when the, the Third Reich is in its death struggle with, with the Russians on the Eastern Front and the German generals are crying out, 1943 and 44, give us more trains. We need trains to get troops to the front. We're, we're fighting, this, we're losing this battle. Send the trains. And the, the response from the German high command was, no, we have more important uses for those trains. Like what? Like transporting women and children and babies to concentration camps where they're going to be burned alive in gas ovens like that. Do you think it's a coincidence that Hamas, in, in our own time and events, has taken billions of dollars to build a terror infrastructure of tunnels and stocked with weapons and rockets when they could have started to turn the Gaza Strip into a holiday resort on the Mediterranean? Do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think it's a coincidence that Iran rages against the Jewish people, sponsors terrorism around the world, or Hezbollah in the north sends showers of rockets in? Do you think all of that is just a coincidence? I don't. And I'll tell you why, because the devil has a long memory. And when the devil looks at the Jewish people, he sees the people of the prophets in the Old Testament. He sees the people of King David. He sees the people of Jesus Christ, the Jew. He sees the people of the the apostles and and the, the huge majority of the first years of the early church. And he has a long memory. And he hates the Jewish people for this history of salvation that God worked through them and for the coming of Jesus Christ, Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. But the devil's hatred doesn't just look back. It looks forward. The devil hates the Jewish people because he knows that God is not finished with them yet. You know that? That God is not done with the Jewish people. How can I make a claim like that? Well, Romans 11, verse 25, the apostle Paul Rabbi Shaul, if you want, he says this, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And listen to this. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul teaches in Romans one day that we're going to see the greatest revival that humanity has ever seen. That the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, who is now in great majority opposed to the Messiah, Jesus, who came 2,000 years ago, will one day come to him en masse, to the point that you could say that all Israel will be saved. And when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he doesn't mean the church. Throughout this passage, 
There's only one meeting for Israel right through this passage, and it is for Israel, what everyone knew was Israel, the Jewish people. It's not saying that the church will all be saved. We don't need to hear that. We know that. This mystery is that one day God is going to act in his sovereign power and the Jewish people en masse are going to come to know him. There's a promise made for no other people. that God is not done with the Jewish people. The devil knows this and he hates them all the more. But the, the Agagites are still raging. Uh, a few years ago, longer, actually seven years ago now, I got to go to Auschwitz I don't know if you've ever been, but there's, um, there's a couple of rooms that are just full of shoes. Shoes of the, the people that were murdered. And they found on the soles of some of those shoes, you know what they found? H. H for Haman. And H for Hitler. The Agagites are still out there. There will be more wars in the Middle East to come, there will be more overt hatred from the devil against the people of Israel. God's not done with the Jews and neither is Satan. So, well, what's the application for us here? Because most of us are not Jews. I did my DNA test uh, a couple of weeks ago, got it for my 50th birthday, and I was kind of hoping I might have a little bit of Jewish. I've got zero percent. Uh, it was very boring, my ethnicity. So, I'm not Jewish. Um, some of you might be. You might have some do the test, you might discover something surprised. But most of us are not Jewish. Very few of us here tonight are Jewish. So what's the application for us? I think the application is that we Gentiles, Gentile Christians need to love and support the Jewish people. Now, the great majority of Jewish people do not know Christ. They're no more converted than Australia is converted. And I've had the opportunity uh, to visit Israel and live in Israel for eight, eight times, not for a long time, but um, in the 90s and 80s. And I saw things there which really saddened me. I saw Palestinian people being mistreated by Israeli soldiers. I saw an arrogance and a Sometimes it's almost a contempt, sort of pride. Israel is not perfect. And I don't think it helps to, to pretend that every action that is always done is, is always as if, if it's God doing that action directly. It's not. It, Middle Eastern politics is complicated. And God loves the Palestinian people too. He loves the Arab people. The, the Bible speaks, actually, he has specific purposes for them in the future, good purposes. But as for me, I'll remember how much I owe the debt that I owe the Jewish people because I've been saved. I've been brought out of darkness to light. And the word came through the prophets. It came through the Jewish people. They're, they're the root. I've been grafted in, as Paul talks about in his imagery, so I don't want to be proud. I want to be thankful for, for the salvation that came to me. And I want to remember that God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. He doesn't change. He's not going to revoke his calling of me any more than he will for the Jewish people of old. Yes, they have rebelled against him, but he's not done with them. And so for my part, I want to love and care for the Jewish people as much as I can. 
And, and part of that is, I don't want to hold Israel to a, to a standard that no other nation is held to. I don't want to somehow suggest that, well, anti-Semitism is their fault because they've done something to deserve it. So somehow or other, these actions are justified. They haven't done this. They haven't deserved this. And so for my part, I want to stand very clearly against all anti-Semitism and demonstrate an active, proactive love for the Jewish people. I think it's biblical. The gospel, uh, when Paul's writing the gospel of Romans, right at the start, he says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, or also for the Gentile. I love it um, that this priority of continued love and concern for the Jewish people, that they might come to know Jesus. We talk about Jewish evangelism, that they they might come to, to meet their own Jewish Messiah, as it's predicted it will one day happen. It's a priority in God's word. And, I, and when we, we get that, there's a sweetness to it. Uh, I don't know if you know, if you've ever heard of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen, uh, responsible for so much of what is going on today in China, actually, building that foundation. Uh, Hudson Taylor, every year, would, would write a check and he would send it to the CMJ, the church's ministry among the Jewish people. And he would send the check to the, the leader of that time of the CMJ. And on the back, he would write, first for the Jew. And then the leader of the CMJ would write a check for exactly the same of money, return it, and then write on the back, and also for the Gentile. He understood. He understood what it is. But the reason that I have to say this is because Christians have not got a great record. If you, if you study the way that Christians have treated the Jewish people down through the millennia, we haven't got a great record. And let's be honest, it's been on both sides. There's been Jewish persecution of Christians, and then Christians have returned the favor with interest. And if you know hist- historically, but it saddens me, in many countries of the world, Christian, nominal Christian countries, Christian countries, in Eastern Europe, for example, you know the worst time to be a Jew? Easter. Because they went to church and they heard about the Jews killed Jesus. And left the church to go and make the Jews pay for what they did. It's a sad history. And I think we Christians need to prioritize it because there's, there's a warning and a blessing that comes with this. In the book of Genesis, God speaks to Abraham about the, the coming, and he says, all nations are going to be blessed through you. We know that's talking ultimately about Jesus. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. And we can talk about the semantics of, of how, that, you know, how that works. I believe that continues to this day. The last thing I want to find myself on is somehow opposing God. Somehow, if, if the devil hates the Jewish people, well, then I'm automatically on the other side. I want to love the Jewish people instead. So that's the first point. Satan hates the Jews. Now, secondly, Satan hates the church. If hate, Satan has a historical anger and rage and hatred for the Jewish people, then multiply that by 10 for what he has for the church of Jesus Christ. He has a hatred for the church which is vicious. It's been honed and sharpened to a razor edge. He hates 
the church. And now I, I know you go, well, I don't see that in my world. I mean, I live in Geelong, you know, like it's, a, it's an interest, it's a safe place. Hayden, ha- Satan hates the, the, the church and he has acted against the church with vicious hatred for millennia. Take, for example, the 20th century. Uh, one source I read recently said that for the 20th century, for every year of the 20th century, all 100 of them, every year, 300,000 Christians were executed for their faith in Jesus. 300,000. All around the world. Executed by governments from, from communist to fascist to Islamic fundamentalist. Executed for following faithfully the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think, well, we don't see that here in Australia. Thank God we don't see it on that level. But if you're around in 2022 and you were part of our church, you might remember the Andrew Thorburn Essendon Football Club, Daniel Andrews incident. I was around then, and let me tell you, we saw evil. We saw persecution for no reason. A little antichrist stirred up by the devil who hates the church to oppose the ministry of God's people. The devil hates the church. And uh, as I read the the book of Revelation, there's terrible persecution still to come. If you're you're part of the church, then you are, the world will hate you, Jesus said. Be assured it will hate you. And for some of us, um, we, we understand that the devil hates the church and, and we can almost get to the point where we see devils everywhere. There's devils under every church. The milk was, went off on my wheat bix and the devil must have been in that fridge. He must have been um, poisoning that milk. We, you know, we, sometimes we can read, look at the world and we've got the newspaper <laughs> or, the, or the laptop in one hand and we've got um, the Bible in the other and, and we're going like, yeah, we're seeing all these events playing out, 100% sure what they are and, and certainly every democratic president of the United States is the Antichrist and we're seeing all of these things and we go, what are we going to do? Build the bunker in the garage, stock it up with tin goods, get all of the Left Behind series from the 90s and the early 2000s and let's watch them on repeat. Is that what God's calling? No, I'm trying to, I'm trying to use humor, right, to say that's not what Christians should do. Not, not to elevate the devil to this position of authority in the church as if he's calling the shots. He'll build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Love that verse. Jesus says the gates of hell, you know, you, you know gates are a defensive measure? When I was a, for, all these, for many years as a Christian, I said the gates of hell were somehow coming to try and take out the church. And when we come the gates, I'm scared, here they come. You know. No, the gates are defensive. Jesus is saying that when the church goes forward with with aggression on the offensive, with the good news of Jesus Christ, then the gates of hell are going to collapse. They won't be able to resist the the coming of the church of Jesus Christ. The devil hates the church, but the captain of the church, Jesus Christ, he is no match. The devil is no match for him. We'll look at that in a moment. All right. Satan hates the Jewish people. He hates the church. Thirdly, he hates you personally. You. Yes, you. He hates you. You ever thought of that? Uh, you're not on a, a level playing field. You're not just going happily through your life, earning money and um, getting a job and, and finding someone to, to marry or going on dates or enjoying the next series. You are in a war. 
and the devil hates you. Uh, Jesus told us specifically, what he, he says, I've come that they have life. But the devil, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. The devil wants to steal from you. He wants to steal what is yours. He wants to steal your sexuality. He wants, to, he wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your peace. He wants to steal from you the good gifts of a loving father. He wants to kill. He wants, in the end, your life to end in death, not just here, but for all eternity. He wants you with him. He wants to destroy you. And he's real, and he hates you. He sets his mind and his thought and his energy on these things, trying to bring you unstuck. And if he can't work through these ways, then he wants to lull you into complacency. He wants you to go to sleep. He wants you to go, I don't really believe in the devil. People are really good, and the world is always really good. And I just want to think happy thoughts and sleep. The devil hates you. This is not just my ideas of, of what the devil... The Bible is full of this. Take, for example, the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You are fighting each day against the very same forces that you see out working in, in Esther chapter 3, that you see in East Timor, that you see in Afghanistan, that you see in Gaza, and you are the subject of that same hatred. It's real. And if you are not yet a Christian, the devil will want to take from you the seeds of life before they can germinate. Jesus told a story and he said, the seed goes out, some of it falls on the hard ground. And he said, these birds come and they, they take up the seed of life before it can germinate. And they say, what are, and he tells them, what are the birds? The bird is Satan. Comes and takes the seed away from the hearts of those people before they can hear it and understand it. And it, the Bible speaks, if you're not a Christian, you have a veil that you can't see. You can see with your eyes, but spiritually, you've got a veil in front of you. That's the devil's work. If you are a Christian, and you're, you're, especially in your Christian leadership, you should expect opposition. Now, sometimes I think that we think when we become Christians, this life's going to be easy. No. You've joined the resistance. You're an operative in, in one sense, enemy territory. You're a marked woman. You're a marked man. The devil hates you. And as a Christian leader, that, that just intensifies. You know, why is it that I worked in some pretty challenging situations in the military? I shared one of them tonight. But why is it only when I enter Christian ministry do I have these intense periods of doubt? Do I struggle sometimes with, with spiritual depression? Uh, why is it that on Saturday afternoons, uh, when I'm going to be preaching the next day, it seems like the heaviness in my heart and... and just crushing down is in direct proportion to what God is going to do through his word the next day. It's not a coincidence. If you're in Christian leadership anyway, you will be opposed. You will be resisted. And we know this is true, don't we? All of us. So my question is, why are we so often asleep? Isn't that a fair call? 
Why is it that our attendance at church is often so haphazard? Well, if there's no better offers, yeah, maybe I'll go. When people need you to encourage them, when you need to hear the word of God, when you've got to have that armor on, right? It's your first thing. I've got to be there. That's the number one priority. And why is it like small group attendance? Well, there's other things to do. You know, like, I mean, there's a new Netflix series and there's other more. There's, no, there's not. Not when you're in a war and you have an enemy that's pressing down on you, wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. Why is it that we're so tight with our money? We're clinging on to that, saying, that, that'll save me. That's important for me. When we live in a world where this, you're not taking it with you, and there's money needed, resources needed to fuel the, the kingdom fight we're in. But the big one, you know what the big one is? Why are we so prayerless? So I'm not prayerless, I say my prayers. I know I do too. But why is it when we say, oh, we're going to have a prayer night? We, we get a, a rump from the church. I'm not, not downplaying it. It's, it's the best night of every month. But why is it? that we find it so easy to go to other Why are we so prayerless when that is the actual supernatural work? Prayer, that, that's wrestling with the hidden powers, the, the powers of evil in this present world, not the flesh and blood you see around you. The devil hates you. Wake up. Steal, kill, and destroy. You don't want that, so wake up. Put on the armor of God. Take the devil seriously. Because he takes you seriously. Fourth and last. This is the best one. In Esther chapter 3, we're not witnessing a life and death struggle between two equally matched powers. It's not like um, we're at the end of a really tight AFL game, maybe a grand final, and it's, it's swaying backwards and forwards, and, we don't know, and we're shouting at the TV maybe, come on, come on, helplessly to do anything. It's not as if it's, it's, we've got God on one hand, we've got the devil on the other, and, and they're wrestling, and now God's winning, and now the devil's winning, and we're like, who's going to win? We know who wins. They're not equally matched. Satan is a being of incredible power when compared to me and you. He's been around a long time. He's subtle but he's not omnipotent. He's created. And his creator outmatches him in power as far as the stars are from the dust. This is not a, a battle where we've got a dualistic force of competition. We have God Almighty. It's, it's almost as if he's got... Satan's playing blind man buff. You ever done that? Pin the tail on the donkey at a, at a kid's birthday party? If you've never done it, what happens? You get the blindfold and you're trying to get lucky dip you know, putting, trying to get the tail on the donkey or whatever you're doing. And, and you know, the parents like, watch their kids trying to, all over the place. And it, it's like that with God. God is watching the devil with all of his subtlety and his scheming and his plans and going like, this is actually really quite funny. Look at you. Well, this is funny. Look at you now. Trying to, as, oh, you thought you got that one, did you? And <laughs> I love it in Esther chapter three, while Haman is having his vague, great victory and the genocide is impending, there's a Jew sharing the king's bed. And there's another Jew to whom the king owes his life. God is overwatching this. He's, he's got his sword drawn, watching Satan play his little games. They're not in doubt. And I love how this, if you think about a New Testament example, I love how this plays out in the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, I don't know, who's seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ? Yeah, some of us have seen it. I'm not sure if I'd recommend it. It's, it's very graphic. 
But if you haven't seen this movie, it's, it's obviously talking about the, the period of the crucifixion of Jesus. And um, Mel Gibson portrays as this hooded figure who lurks in all of the scenes as the, as the injustice of the crucifixion is playing out. The innocent man is going to be murdered. And you see him orchestrating all the events behind the shadows. But I, listen to this prayer of the early church. Acts chapter 4. This is the early church, just a, a, few, a few years at the most after these events. They prayed this. Listen to this prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. But truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you hear that last sentence? Satan was working his evil through the pride and the cruelty of the Roman Empire, through the hatreds and the jealousies of the Jewish leaders, through the fickleness of the crowd, through the twisted mind of King Herod, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The early church understood it. All the devil succeeded in doing in the crucifixion was fulfilling the prophecies predicted in the old and providing the means of salvation for the whole world. The devil thought he wins. Epic own goal, disaster. And the early church said, all of these things were happening and, and they looked so evil and it looked so impossible. But listen again, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is sovereign. And you and I need to hear this, I think. I, I don't think you can walk away from tonight and go, oh, Andrew doesn't believe the devil's real or he doesn't believe that he, he hates me and he's trying to work his... And it, and it can be overwhelming. But I want you to walk away knowing that Jesus Christ is so much bigger and more beautiful and better and more powerful. Satan hates the Jewish people. He hates the church. He hates us. But let's never forget that Satan is on that chain. He's a little yappy dog in one sense. Thinks he's got a big opinion of himself. The Lord Jesus holds that, that chain around his neck. Gives him his, his little room, room to play in now. And then one day, in a jank, that chain, jerk that chain and lead him into the fires of hell. But I will not shed a single tear of sorrow for him. His day is coming. He's angry. His time is short. He's real. He's powerful but he is beaten. Jesus Christ has the victory. As we get to this chapter in Esther, it looks like the devil holds all the cards. Genocide is on his way, not only likely, but seemingly unstoppable. This is not the end of the story. Not the end of the story at all. Come next week. You'll see what God's working in the midst of all this. It's not the end of the story. Evil doesn't triumph. Good wins. Now I invite the band up and then I'd like to spend some time praying for us. Praying that we'd really respond to this.
Let's pray. Father, tonight, as, as we've looked at this passage, we humble ourselves again because we recognize that sometimes we have listened to the lies of the devil. Sometimes we've allowed him to steal and kill and destroy. Lord, we come before you and as we humble ourselves, we ask for your protection. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask, Lord, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead would indeed dwell in us. That he who said, all authority is given to me on heaven and earth, so go and make disciples in my name. That we would advance on the gates of hell, knowing that you have gone before us. So Lord, as we ask forgiveness, we also ask for forgiveness for ways and perhaps in which we have treated the Jewish people. We ask for forgiveness for apathy. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to see in the midst of the complexity of Middle Eastern politics your continuing love and plan for your people, the Jewish people. And Father, we pray that you would bring peace and justice. We pray for for Jew and for Arab and anyone caught in the middle, Lord, that you would bring peace there. We grieve for, for Satan's work. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will do what you promised you would do. We look forward to the day when you will call your historic people back to yourself. And Lord, we pray that until then, you would help us as a church to carry out your mission to be full of faith and trust and boldness. Well, we, we know the power of the evil one and he far outmatches us, but we know the one who has given us authority, the one who delegates us and gives us himself, his spirit, his presence and his, his vision. Lord, we pray that we would be focused on you and Lord Jesus Christ, that we would love you and know you and serve you. And Lord, I pray finally to, to anyone here tonight doesn't know the Lord Jesus and is caught in the snares of the devil, Lord, that you would set them free, you'd open their eyes, you would show them the reality of life and death, heaven and hell, and that, Lord, you would save them through the blood of Jesus Christ, your son. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.